Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2. When I was a youth pastor many, many years ago, I, uh, we decided as a youth group that we were going to create a newsletter as a way to communicate stuff that was going on in the youth group. And, but we knew people wouldn't necessarily read it just because we wrote it, so we thought, well, we need to get somebody famous. We need to get an interview with somebody famous, then that'll, that'll make people want to read our newsletter. So we managed to get an interview with Jim Zorn, who was the quarterback for the Seahawks at that time, and a fine Christian, as, as he still is a fine Christian. And uh, so we selected some kids to go with us to ask Jim Zorn questions. And one of them was a, uh, a guy who was a junior in high school and was a football player. And on the morning when we gathered to drive to Kirkland to, to answer these questions, this, this guy was just all wired up, this, this high school kid, and kind of tired and, and, and excited. And, and he said, I was awake all night trying to decide what to wear. And he came in, <laughs> came in an old pair of jeans and an old shirt, you know, whatever. But <laughs> he was going to be in the presence of greatness, and he wanted to be just right. He wanted to be prepared to meet the great Jim Zorn. We all have some people in our life, in our, in our, in our, in our estimation, that are great. Might, might be an athlete, it might might be who knows what kind of a person that you, you look around and think, oh, this is a great person. There might even be some people who, who, who you would stay up all night trying to decide what to wear if you were to see them. In Philippians chapter 2, God is going to talk to us about the greatest person who's ever walked the earth and in whose presence we will all get to stand or as this scripture says, in whose presence we will all get to bow. Follow as I read from Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Now, on Christmas Day, we, we actually looked at the first part of this passage, verses 5 through 8, and you can certainly get that sermon off of the website to hear more about the humility of Christ. But the thing that we want to just, we just want to review a little bit and say this, that the greatness of Christ is seen in his sacrificial humility. Look in verse 6. Who being in the, for, the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, that's referring to the time in eternity past before Christ came to earth when he looked at his existence 
and realized that if he was going to come to earth and take on a human body, he would have to leave his glorious existence of God, the existence of being worshipped, the existence of having the angels attend to him. And he willingly let go of that. It was not something to hang on to as a treasure that, that he could not possibly let go. He let go of the glory of heaven and took on in his incarnation, the form of a servant, verse 7 says. He made himself of no reputation. In other words, there was nothing special about him. Humanly speaking, he was average. There was nothing, he, he, he didn't walk down the street and people swooned at his appearance. He was an average human being, physically speaking. He took on the form of a bond servant and came in the likeness of men. He took on our human race. And then verse 8 shows the, the depth of his humility. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Christ voluntarily left the glories of heaven and entered the human race and laid down his life for us. And this verse from John puts it even more clearly in terms of his personal sacrifice I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished, and he breathed his last. And when the Roman soldier came to, to speed the death of the people on the cross, he looked at him and said, he's already dead. Jesus gave up his life. It was not taken from him. Jesus is great because of his great humility. He gave all that he could give for us who needed him. This week, I was uh, in the gym where I normally work out, uh, beginning to go back to regular workouts after my knee surgery and following the instructions of my physical therapist, and I was working out and and uh, I was on the stationary bicycle there, and I'm pedaling away, and a and, uh, guy walked by, and I said, now you've got to cut me a little slack, because I'm only two and a half weeks out from surgery. And he said, well, you really have to cut me some slack then, because I'm recovering from life-threatening cancer. And he described it to me. And I, and, and I felt like this. <laughs> Have mercy. It's so easy to think and speak about why we deserve some special treatment. But it's hard to put our needs aside and act out of purely out of concern for others. If anyone deserves special treatment, it was the Son of God. I mean, perfect in his character and behavior in his humanity. And, and, and doing all of the miracles and all of the teaching that he did, if anybody deserved special treatment, it was him. And yet he came to serve, not to be served. He was constantly serving others, right up to and including his own death. In fact, when he's hanging on the cross in, in unimaginable pain, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who's he thinking about? He's thinking about the sinners. Not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the, the thief on the cross. This day you will be with me in paradise. He's thinking about his mother, 
who, who he commends into the hands of John the Apostle and says, now you're going to be her son and you're going to take care of her. All he's thinking about is other people. That's what humility is. That's how God defines humility. He doesn't define it as those who walk around saying, oh, I'm no good and I'm terrible. No, he says, he says humility, godly humility is to put yourself aside and to put others in that place for their sake. That's what greatness is. Jesus Christ is great because of his humility. Now what we learn today, starting in verse 9 through 11, is that the greatness of Christ is maximized by the recognition of the Father. Um, look at, with me at verse 9, please. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. The, the therefore connects us back to verses 5 through 8 because of the extreme humility that Christ demonstrated. Because of that, God highly exalted him. The word, uh, the, the words there for highly exalted, it's one word, but it's a compound, and, and it's, it's, it's a superlative. He exalted him, he really exalted him. There's a sense in which when we look at the person of Christ, we'd say, well, he can't be any greater than he is. He's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He, he, he came and did all of this. How can he possibly be any greater I readily admit that I can't fully grasp it. In fact, I look to answer this particular question in all of the dozen or so commentaries by great men of previous generations and this generation, and none of them could come up with an answer better than to say, as great as Christ was, somehow God heaped greatness on him. One of the, one of the commentators made this distinction, and we need to as well. Jesus gained Official glory, not essential glory. In other words, he didn't become more divine or more God. He didn't gain any power, but he gained recognition from God the Father. It's as though God the Father multiplied his status. As the creator, Christ deserved our worship, but as the self-humbling Savior, he deserves our worship even more. We might say, as the, as, the, as the ruler of the universe, he says, worship me. But as over here, he's the savior of us. And, and we just say, oh, I must worship you. You're so great. You've saved me. As the second person of the Trinity, he commanded our respect. But as the savior, he deserves our respect. What is his position now? What does it mean to be highly exalted? <clears throat> well, there's a couple of passages of Scripture that will help us understand that. From Hebrews, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in the time past of the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Part of the exaltation of Christ is that he officially and formally owns everything now. Okay? When you call Christ your Lord or the Lord of the universe or the King of the universe, we, we are recognizing that he owns everything. He is the heir of all things, through whom God also made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You remember the disciples wanted to sit 
on the right hand of Christ. To be on the right hand of God is to be the most important right next to the person on the throne. And God says that he has that Christ has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. But to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? All of those things are part of what it means for Christ to be highly exalted, to be lifted up above all. This passage from Ephesians elaborates on it as well. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Far above all principality and power. And by saying far above, he doesn't mean removed from. He means over, completely over, like a giant umbrella over all principality and power. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One of, certainly one of the great elements of, in the exaltation of Christ is this from John 5. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Because of Christ's great sacrifice, God has elevated Jesus to the absolute supreme authority over our universe, including every one of us. And verses 10 through 11 in Philippians 2 tell us how God wants us to respond to that exaltation. Look there, please. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God says that Christ has been given a position and a title in which he expects every created being to bow the knee in humble acknowledgement that Christ is Lord and to agree with God that Christ is Lord. That's what it means to confess. Now, uh, if I could bow the knee today, I would. Uh, I'm sure if I would told my physical therapist I needed to work on that, he would have been glad to help this week. <laughs> I could bow this one, but I can't bow the other one. <laughs> Bowing the knee, certainly in the time of Christ, and we understand it today as well, is a, is a, is a sign of, of, uh, uh, of respect. We might even just think of bowing there are some cultures in the world in which people bow to one another out of respect. There are different ways that we show respect. God says he wants every single living person, every moral being in the world, in the universe, to bow the knee and to confess with the mouth that Jesus is Christ. 
Now, there are two ways that people will acknowledge the greatness of Christ, either in obedient faith or condemnation. Obedient faith or condemnation. The greatness of Christ will be acknowledged by all of creation. And the first way is this. This is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. God expects us to bow the knee, to confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Savior. He gives us the opportunity now to do it in faith. In this next passage that I'm going to show you, there's an example of some people who refuse to bow, and there's also a repetition of this command that we ought to acknowledge him. The apostles are, are talking to the Jewish leaders early in the book of Acts, and he says, Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. The ultimate act of arrogance against the person of Christ was crucifixion. The people who were alive at that time, the leadership who, who rejected Christ, rejected him all the way to death. They would not bow the knee. They would not confess with their mouth. In fact, they did just the opposite. Once they began to understand who he was and, and who he thought they were, they said, how can we put him to death? But the truth is this, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Christ we must be saved by faith in Christ. And that requires us to humbly bow and say, I can't save myself, but Christ can save me. And it requires us to say the words with our mouth that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Lord. Salvation in the name of Christ is a must. And this next passage tells us how serious God is about this. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This isn't a, this isn't a choice like pick one. This is a choice like, uh, like you need to do this or there are serious ramifications. Have you bowed the knee to Christ as Savior? Have you confessed him with your mouth? Have you confessed that he is Lord and the only Savior. Turn with me to Revelation 19. In Revelation 19 and 20 and 21, we're going to read parts of these chapters. We're going to see people bow in a forced way. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. This is, uh, this is near the end, right near the end of the tribulation time period, right before the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. 
And we read this, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who, re who received the mark and the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." At the end of the tribulation, God says there's going to be a great rebellion. All of the unbelievers that are left in the tribulation time, led by Satan and led by the false prophet and the Antichrist, they're going to come up against him, and the battle's going to last about that long. But you understand, here is a, thousands, millions of people who have refused to bow the knee who have bowed the knee instead to the, to the great uh, Antichrist of the tribulation time, taking his mark in their forehead or their, or their hand or their forehead. They have bowed to him, but they will not bow to Christ, and Christ comes and he will judge them. Chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Drop down to verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And when we ask the question why, the only answer can be, because God wants to prove one more time who is, who is mighty and who is not. And he will go out, verse 8, to deceive the nations. These are the people who will be born and who will live during that thousand years on earth. There will be human beings born, and some of them will become believers, and some of them will not. They will all uh, bow the knee in, in an external sub, uh, subservience to Christ because they have to, but in their hearts they are not bowing to him. They are not confessing him as Lord. And so he will go out to deceive the nations. Gog and Magog, and he will gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. 
The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. These are not believers. These are unbelievers who have died, and now they've been resurrected for judgment. Judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone found not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You can bow to Christ now in humble faith and be saved, be on your way to heaven, have a transformed life now. You can confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and know the the, the wonder of being a a born-again child of God. Or you can walk on stubbornly saying, I don't need that. And there are several possible futures all culminating in the same place. And what do I mean by several possible futures? Well, one of those futures is is that you might live right into the tribulation time. And I would imagine that when that starts to happen, you'll have second thoughts about what you decided about bowing the knee to Christ. I hope you do. And if you make it all the way to the end and you follow the devil and his rebellion, you will be killed and then resurrected for judgment and then sent to hell. But make no mistake, there will be a point at which everyone has to say, Jesus is Lord. Some will say it gritting their teeth with hatred, with anger. Those of us who are with him in his armies coming from heaven, we will be saying, Jesus is Lord. As we should be saying now. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Do you want to do it in faith or condemnation? One commentator put it this way, Paul does not imply this as universal salvation, but he means every personal being will ultimately confess Christ's lordship, either with joyful faith or with resentment and despair. Listen to this prophetic psalm. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is God the Father talking about God the Son. Ask of me. I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. I would ask you today, have you kissed the Son? 
Have you put your faith in Christ? When we think about bowing the knee, confessing with the mouth, the question ought to flow right out of that. How deep is your bow? (laughs) How complete is your confession? A lot of people want to believe in Christ for salvation, but maybe they don't really want to follow him as Lord. God says, you need to bow. You need to confess. Well, the greatness of Christ will be acknowledged by all of creation. And the last thing that we need to understand here about the greatness of Christ today is it is an example to us believers. It is an example to us. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, please. First Peter chapter 5. In Philippians chapter 2, the flow of the thought in this chapter has to do with Christians being humble. The example of Christ humbling himself and being exalted by God is cited for us as an instruction and an encouragement. He humbled himself, and we are told that we ought to have the same mind that he had. In other words, we should be humbling ourselves and we should be trusting in God for our exaltation. Look at 1 Peter 5, please, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, and all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Jesus Christ modeled this principle for us. He humbled himself before God. Jesus, in all things, was an example of humility to us. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane, that famous episode where he is, he's pouring out his heart and part of what he's pouring out to God is, oh God, is it possible for this cup to pass by me so that I don't have to experience the terrible things ahead? He knew how terrible it was going to be, and, 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 he, and he did not want to go through that, and yet what was the final word? Yet not my will, but your will be done. That's humility. That's humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. You remember the cross? Father, forgive them. He's not standing there or or, or hanging there saying, I don't deserve this. I'm being unjustly treated. He's not talking that way. He has humbled himself under the hand of God. God said, this is the only way humanity can be saved. And he said, I will do it. This is a a, a summary of, of, of Jesus' perspective From Hebrews 10, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. He is an example to us of following the will of God. And so God tells us in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What does it mean? What does it mean to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Well, I'm going to offer a few applications of this and suggestions based in the scripture, 
but I, I would encourage you to keep this theme in your mind perhaps this week as you read your Bible, as you pray, as you go about your life, saying, God, am I living under your hand? Have I humbled myself under your hand? Here's an example. Living under the hand of God means your actions are always chosen based on God's word, not your own wisdom, even if it means the loss of recognition, power, or control. See, we're, we're willing to follow God, but not so much if it means we're going to have to appear to be less. We want to be something. And when God calls us to act in certain ways that mean I need to pull back on myself. I need to let somebody else go ahead. I need to give somebody else the honor or whatever. When God calls us to do that, oh, then there's a struggle. Am I willing to give up recognition, give up power, give up control in order to obey God's word? What does it mean to humble yourself? It means you obey God's word even when that means staying under a trial. You know the hard part about being under a trial? It's being under a trial. You get into the middle of it and you think, okay, I'm done. God says, no, not just yet. And the great question we have to ask is, will we continue to live righteously or will we find an unrighteous path to escape the trial? To humble yourself <clears throat> under God's hand means, okay, God, I'm here. I'm going to live the way you said as long as you leave me in this trial. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God means that you care so much about the unity of the body of Christ that you gladly support others' ideas, even when that means you don't get your way. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God means that you apologize for whatever wrong you did in a particular situation, even though others also did wrong and refuse to accept their responsibility. Humble yourself under the hand of God. But God, you don't understand! God understands. Jesus understands. If anybody understands what it means to be insulted and poorly treated and uh, punished unnecessarily, it's Jesus. But here's the cool thing. Look at 1 Peter 5, 6 again. The cool thing about humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God is this. It comes with a promise. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The exaltation of Christ was a direct result of his humility. He humbled himself, and God exalted him. God calls on us to humble ourselves and promises exaltation 
in due time. When is the due time? Right now. No, God knows when the due time is. And God knows what kind of exaltation you need. We get encouragement in many ways, some as simple as a, as a, a thank you card or, or, or a gift or some acknowledgement for something we did. Maybe we get exalted because somebody comes along and asks our opinion about something. And we think, wow, they, they asked my opinion. Sometimes a parent can be exalted by God by having children who imitate them. I remember when our daughter Molly went out to babysit, got a job, kind of a long-term babysitting thing. And it seemed, maybe it was a short one, I don't know. But she came back telling us about the kids and, and how they acted and what she told them. And I thought, she's acting just like us. <laughs> I, I didn't bother to tell her that right at that moment. But. I can guarantee you, she never came around and patted me on the back for the way I disciplined her. <laughs> but she imitated it. That's an exaltation. I'll take that. Sometimes you get a promotion at work. Sometimes you get an apology from a person you had a conflict with. There can be all kinds of ways that God can exalt us. But even if it never comes here, it will come at the Bema Seat judgment when he looks at our whole life and he says, good job, good job, good job. You know, the other alternative, according to 1 Corinthians 3, is that when you come to that Bema Seat judgment, you get into heaven, it says, so as by fire, with no reward. Would it be better to humble yourself now and get the reward of God then? Or would it be better to be arrogant now and to get no reward then? We will never reach the height of recognition which Christ reached, but we will be recognized by God for every humble action we do. You know, our personal struggle with humility is absolutely intertwined with the person of Christ. How in the world can we be concerned with our own greatness when we stand next to Him? Here's me and Jesus walking down the street, and, and I'm like the disciples. Remember when they were walking down the road? They were walking down the road, arguing among themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. That's how we are. We're walking down the street with Jesus going, look at me, look at me. When we should be saying, look at him. Look how great he is. Who do you want to be seen today? Jesus or you? May God help us be more like John the Baptist, who said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Heavenly Father, I want you to increase. Jesus, I want you to increase. I want you to be seen in your greatness today. We are reminded of the greatness of your mercy and grace as we read those terrible passages from Revelation.
We thank you for your mercy and grace to us and your greatness in that. May we aspire to be humble. And may we wait patiently for your exaltation whenever you choose to give it to us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.